The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 12 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we're going to be talking about X-Men number 9, Enter the Avengers. Additionally, this week, I am joined by my friend Andrew, our first guest on the show. And of course, went with someone named Andrew just to confuse the ever-loving hell out of everyone. You're welcome. You are very welcome. So this week's issue is written by Stan Lee, pencils by Jack Kirby. Jack is back. Well, kind of. Jack is back for our show. Jack never actually left the X-Men at this point. Inks by Schick Stone and letters by Sam Rosen. The issue comes to us in December of 1964. So starting off the issue, there is a just massive, massive amount of stuff going on on this cover. We've got all of the Avengers, all of the X-Men, Professor X, and Lucifer, and a ton of text. Actually, I should correct myself here. We actually don't have Wasp on the cover, which kind of perturbs me. Oh, uh, yeah, she isn't. Looking even just for a small speck that might be here. Yeah, no, there's there's nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. I do like the, uh, the first couple issues of X-Men they've always had. Angel up there at the top. I don't know why that's always been one of my favorite things. But... I hadn't, you know, I hadn't noticed that before, but I'll, I'll have to go back and look at that. Yeah, I think around 13 is when they stopped doing it. Interesting. But yeah, that's one of the first things that stood up to me was the cover of it does have a lot going on. I mean, it looks good. The art is nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's curvy just, art. Can't argue with how nice it looks, at least. It's just super busy. There's yeah. just there's too much going on. Poor Iceman. He's getting attacked by Iron Man and Captain America. That's not cool. Yeah. And then taking a look at our second page, we're basically, we've got another cover on the on the first page, which I think is kind of a waste of a page. I do like they're um, savagely written by Stan Lee, supremely drawn by Jack Kirby, all the weird introductions for the people that worked on it. Oh, yeah, those are always fun. I talked about that a couple episodes ago, and there was one, Dick Ayers, our answer to automation, and Artie Simic, our answer to Sam Rosen. <laughs> or no, 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 swap that. Sam Rosen, our answer to Artie Simic. Ah, nice. And I was like, that's kind of a dick move, though. Hey, I'd do it. <laughs> that's fair. But, like, I can just imagine, like, Stanley, Jack Kirby sitting around and being like, oh, you, this was savagely written by me, and then it's sub- supremely drawn by you. Well, see, that's part of the thing, is they didn't sit around like that. This is Stan Lee's way of making the reader think that. Yeah. Rarely, if ever, were they, there were occasions, but rarely were they all together. I think one of the, the biggest examples of it is the Mary Marvel Marching Society record that they recorded. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I think it was Steve Ditko, that they talk about Steve Ditko. And Steve doesn't say anything because I don't even think he was there. <laughs> but yeah, Stan tried to foster this image of the Marvel bullpen that was basically non-existent. Yeah. But it helped build that cult of personality, both around Stan and around Marvel Comics. You know, for a lot of its history, Marvel Comics has been a personality-driven comic book company, starting with Stan and Jack. But I mean, you look at a lot of the people who have written for or been artists for Claremont, the Simonsons, you've got a lot of, within the comic industry, big names. Yeah. 
So our issue actually starts on page two as opposed to page one. And the X-Men are on this ocean liner. And Cyclops saves the ocean liner from a Titanic-esque fate. Apparently they come out of some fog bank and they see an iceberg right in front of them. And they're going to crash into it. And they're only saved because Cyclops just blasts it to pieces. And like, honestly, one person makes mention of it, that they saw beams destroy it. But other than that, everyone's just kind of like, eh. Yeah, everyone's fairly nonplussed by the fact that an iceberg was suddenly and mysteriously destroyed right in front of them before they were about to collide with it. Yeah, I, I just found that very funny. So, of course, again, being early X-Men, and again, although obviously this is an Avengers podcast, since we are in an X-Men book, it's going to be a fairly X-centric episode this week. But since we're in early X-Men, Cyclops using his powers at that level drains him to the point of, of near collapse. And so Angel helps him into their cabin. And then we get the X-Men kind of taking care of Cyclops. And I like this. It really kind of plays almost the opposite point of, I think, with the Avengers not feeling necessarily like a team. Whereas the X-Men are really a slightly dysfunctional, but a family. Mm -hmm. Definitely. They're taking care of him. Iceman makes ice to help cool Scott off. Gene puts the ice on his head telekinetically. Beast gets him a drink. Using his feet. Of course, using his feet. Angel helped him into the cabin in the first place. They're all really looking out for each other. And you get a different team dynamic and different team feel than the Avengers. Also, these first couple of panels really make me appreciate the casting of Sophie Turner and Ty Sheridan in X-Men Apocalypse. I always thought Sophie Turner was a great choice for a young teenage Jean Grey in the first place. Like when they announced that she was going to do it, I could see it. Like having read the older X-Men and stuff like that and then seeing her on screen. Yeah, no, I mean, I certainly saw it. I was just thinking this scene in particular made me go, yeah, that was a good casting choice. Yeah, I can see that then. This page in particular, the teenage angst is just oozing off the page. You know, we've got the typical Jean Grey thought bubble of, oh my God, how much I love Scott, but he can never love me. The only thing we're missing is the Scott thought bubble of, oh my God, I love Jean, but she can never love me. <laughs> Because that is most of early X-Men. Yeah, at least between those two. What's funny is because it's between those two, but pretty much everyone gets involved with it at some point. Yeah. Everyone's got a crush on Jean, and it's just Jean has a crush on Scott. She's perfect. It's really just like being back in high school all over again. (laughs) Now, Scott's rest is interrupted by a psychic communication from Professor X who throughout this issue will be doing the creepy floating head thing, kind of like Loki does in the first issue of Avengers, except it's the full head and not just the creepy eyes. I honestly don't know which is worse. Like, I don't know which feels creepier. I would go with the head. Yeah, I'm kind of leaning towards it. Like, the eyes are creepy. Because, first off, the way Professor X is drawn, his face is already somewhat creepy. Yes. So you oh, just... Oh, God, yes. So you just do a floating, creepy Professor X head, and yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah, middle-aged bald guy watching a bunch of teenagers. There's just something wrong with that. So I should explain, Professor X has actually been gone for a couple of issues. And he apparently has summoned them to Europe. And we find out that Professor X is going wheelchair spelunking, basically. Super sweet wheelchair. No, I mean, this is, this is a great sequence. I love this with the off-road wheelchair. Yeah. And he has apparently located a man named Lucifer, the person who is responsible for Professor X being in the wheelchair for for having lost the use of his legs. And the professor is going to take his revenge on Lucifer. What kills me about this portion, though, is 
Professor X basically says, I'll explain to you later what's going on, but by the way, I might not survive. Like, there's useful information here. If you may not survive this, and you're going after this dude who's really super villainous, don't you think, like, maybe the X-Men should have the information before you possibly die? <laughs> like, like that should be a thing. Yeah. And he does this several times. There are a lot of podcasts I follow, and several of them discuss X-Men specifically, and they all agree, like, Professor X is just kind of a dick. I mean, he's a dick for being one of the smarter people in the entire Marvel universe. But at least at this time, yeah, he's pretty dumb when yeah, it comes he to does, decision making, at least. He does dumb things and he's uber manipulative. Or like throughout this issue, we will see he only gives the X-Men a little bit of information, keeps telling them there's no time. He makes the situations worse every time. And it's really kind of impressive how bad he makes things. Mm hmm. My other issue with that is if Professor X tells us nothing aside from, hey, this is the guy who lost me the use of my legs, why do I care about the villain? Yeah. It just, just kind of seems like he's going after him like, oh, you made me paralyzed, so now I'm going to take my revenge on you. Well, and that's fine. Like, I can deal with a personal vendetta, but make me care a little bit more. Mm-hmm. He caused me to lose use of my legs. How? Yeah. When? Why? What were the circumstances? You hate him. Make me hate him. Yeah. And like you said, they make him seem like, or he makes him seem like such a big villain, but yet we get like no backstory to him at all. He just kind of. Yeah. And that's something I've thought about Lucifer in general. He's only in a few issues ever. Yeah. And I think he's a villain with a lot of potential that, that just doesn't ever get used. It seems like maybe, unfortunately, by his designs, they gave him too much of a Magneto look. Yeah, you know, I was going to bring that up. He very much has a Magneto coloring and similar costume design. It's not quite the same. Yeah, I mainly saw that in the color. Oh, no, no, no. But, I mean, even still, he's got the, the wide-shouldered cape. Yeah. And in general, the, the look, the, I mean, the boots are similar, the, the jumpsuit is similar. Obviously, the helmets are different. But, no, I can absolutely see that at some point in someone's head, this was going to be a Magneto review. Yeah. So I'm looking at my notes, and I, I don't exactly understand what I was referring to, but I just have a note this is Professor X is an idiot. Probably kind of like what we were like. He's like, I can't tell you. I might die, but I'll tell you later. Yeah, I stand, but I might I stand die. by the statement of my note. I just don't know what I'm referring to. Probably that. It's, no, that's really good. Huh? Oh, God. So while Professor X is trying to make his way to Lucifer... Lucifer is aware of what Professor X is doing, and he sends an artificial dust devil after Professor X. And we get an editor's note explaining what a dust devil is. If you need an editor's note to explain what it is, why are you calling it that? Especially when we could call it something else, like a tornado, yeah. and everybody would know. <laughs> I just like how he has an artificial dust storm maker. I mean, that's some quality super villainy right there. Yeah. This is the kind of stuff I'm saying when I think Lucifer has potential to make a great villain. Like, he has all of the characteristics, all of the tropes going on, mm -hmm. and he just doesn't get used. Yeah. So, Professor X is captured by this dust devil and is taken to Lucifer, where the dust devil seems to solidify into some kind of ball. And then Professor X confronts Lucifer and attempts to shoot him, which I think is kind of lame, but... Yeah, it was kind of weird to see Professor X with a gun. Yeah, especially for someone who generally is... A non-violence... Well, I would say is generally associated with a non-violent approach. Yeah. Especially when you compare him to Magneto, which is a lot of what X-Men is about. Certainly they're the Malcolm X and Martin Luther King uh, yeah. analogy, which doesn't work all that well. But in general, there are certain elements like the nonviolent versus violent mm -hmm. means that are taken from individuals such as Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X. And yeah, so Professor X using a gun is a little weird when he's supposed to be the nonviolent one. 
Yeah, especially when he's supposedly also world's most powerful telepath and he could just use his mind. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute because I've got some thoughts on that. I guess I understand the gun, though, to an extent in that he's paralyzed and you can't have much of a f- super-powered fight with a guy who can't stand. Like, it's, it's a terrible True. way to put it, but... Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah, unfortunately, with Professor X being paralyzed, it does limit your options a little bit, too. Yeah. Even while Professor X is shooting at Lucifer, Lucifer tells him to stop and that if he doesn't, the entire world is doomed. Dun, dun, dun. And then we cut away. Yeah, that is a weird place to cut. There's a few weird cuts in this book. I feel like maybe because they were introducing the Avengers, maybe they felt like they needed to cut certain places to give the Avengers enough time, even though it is an X-Men book. I will say... There's a lot going on in this book, and I'm not terribly offended by pacing. Like, the pacing is actually pretty good. I mean, it felt okay. Like I said, I just think it cut at weird points. Like you said, the Lucifer, where he's just, if you kill me, the whole world's doomed, and then we're on a road somewhere in this European town with the Avengers. Like, yeah, if uh, I wasn't paying attention, I'd be like, okay, what's going on? What happened? I would say from a comics storytelling standpoint, that page is very well set up for a big reveal. I mean, you've got Lucifer saying the world is doomed in the very last panel, so you get the good page turn mm. for the big reveal, and then they don't use it. Again, I understand why they may not want to use that, mm. but I think it's certainly a missed opportunity or, or just a choice I would not have made. Yeah, I think a reveal like that would have served the story better. But at any rate, we do in fact cut away, and we cut to the Avengers. And the Avengers are also in Europe, and they're following Thor's hammer. It's like a divining rod. Thor's hammer senses evil. I gotta look that up. I'm not sure if that's actually an established power of Thor's hammer prior to this. Yeah, I was kind of the same way. I was like, did his hammer always do that? Because I was like, it certainly hasn't in Avengers. I have to, I have to go back and look at Journey into Mystery. So I was about to say, I was like, if so, there should be like no problem at all for the Avengers. They should always be where they need to be, or at least Thor. That's true. But the Avengers run across a poor, hapless tourist. That poor guy. It's an American tourist, actually. And they tell him he needs to get out of here because there's some kind of great evil in the area and he's not safe. But I I would like to say on that page, I mean, we've talked about it before, my feelings on Hank Pym, about how much of a dick he is. And like, this just kind of confirms it. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. I don't think Stanley was setting up a lot of what we know to be wrong with Hank Pym. Yeah. Like, I just, I don't see that as being... A long-term plan he had in his mind. No, not at all. Having said that, it's there. <laughs> the people who follow Stan Lee, they're not coming up with this on their own. They're building off of an established characterization. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, like, everyone's just... Well, actually, no one even talks to him. At least on this page. At least that I'm seeing. Uh, he's like, you know, I seem to have lost my way. Could you direct me to wherever? And then Giant Man is just... I suggest you just keep going, friend. I don't know if it's because just of what I know of Hank Pym, but in my mind, like he says that in like a very... It's a little snarky. Yeah. This neighborhood may become dangerous before long. Yeah, though admittedly, I think the one who's probably the worst to this poor tourist is actually Wasp. Yeah. He lands on this dude's head and then tells him off pretty quickly. And at this point, you know, he's seen a guy who's 12 feet tall. He's seen Wasp who's tiny. Seen a man made of iron. Yeah. He just takes off because this dude is terrified out of his mind. And then Wasp gets all offended, and he's like, well, she, he could have said goodbye. Right, even though she just told him off. Yeah. Wasp has always been one of my favorite characters, though. No, I really enjoy Wasp, and I, I'm constantly disappointed by the Silver Age when she just doesn't get to do anything, or she's her contributions are minimized. Yeah. I kind of went off on a little bit of a tirade last, <laughs> last episode about that. I've gone off a couple times, but I think last time was one of the longer ones. Yeah. 
So our poor tourist keeps going down the road and runs into the X-Men, which is fine until he tells them what he just ran across and the X-Men feel the need to go investigate and Warren rips off his shirt and reveals his wings. And this poor guy is just, he's done. He's seen so much. Seen so much. He insists he is now going right back home to Ohio. I love reading this part of it, like where Warren takes off his shirt and is, has his wings. I was like, that could never happen in today's society. Because the reason he does it is like, well, no one knows who I am here in Europe, so it's okay. Oh, I, yeah. I was like, if that happened in today's society, that thing would be all over the internet and stuff like that. So I just thought it was a weird look back to the past where like stuff over in Europe wasn't going to hit in America ever. Yeah. So that, that made me chuckle a little bit. The other thing I would think is Warren would have a much harder time hiding. Back in the 1960s, everyone still kind of wore suits and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's really not a thing anymore. Yeah. He'd have a very difficult time hiding those wings. I imagine he'd be wearing like a baggy hoodie or something like that. Yeah, that's possible. I have to say, it's a really great panel of Warren taking off. He just looks very... Majestic. Yeah, regal, majestic, even to be a little cliche, angelic. (laughs) And I like his little thought bubble where he's like, flight, what a glorious feeling. You know, that's what he was born to do. Because like, my image of Angel was shaped in the 90s, like especially when he became like Archangel and all that. And then the cartoon where, you know, he always had the hardest of times hiding his powers because his was a physical thing. Yeah. And it's just nice to see him like flying and being like, this is what he was born to do like kind of accepting of what he is in modern times we've gotten a nice throwback to that after the dark angel saga yeah when he's kind of been he's not been warren you know the character has been different but the character also embraces being an angel Mm -hmm. and being able to fly around it's been kind of cool yeah so and you get the bonding between young angel from the past and the newer or angel the present i guess you say yeah which actually should be realistically is angel of pretty much this time period the one from the past yeah yeah because i believe it's x-men number six or number eight is where all new x-men pulls the team from i think so i think you're right i i it's six or we've got it sitting right in front of me why don't i just look <laughs> yeah it's issue number eight. Oh, okay so yeah it's the one before this one yeah so I mean, literally like right before this So while Angel goes to scout ahead and find the Avengers, although he doesn't realize it's the Avengers, we cut back to Professor X and Lucifer, and Lucifer explains his plan, kind of. He allows Professor X to see certain things and then put the pieces together for himself. And the professor realizes that Lucifer has tied the trigger for a massive nuclear weapon to his own heartbeat. So that if anything happens to Lucifer, like, I don't know, Professor X killing him like Professor X intended to, this bomb is going to go off and is going to be powerful enough to destroy an entire continent. It's a hell of a bomb. Well, depends on the continent. It's still a big bomb. Yeah, I mean, it's still big. But if we're looking at Asia, that's what popped in my head. I was like, well, what continent are we talking about here? Well, they actually say later on Antarctica. Oh, oh yeah, that is right. Which yeah. is still fairly large. Yeah. And I got to say, this is a really clever plan on Lucifer's part. He knows Professor X is coming to kill him. Mm-hmm. It's never explained why he knows that. But he knows the professor's coming. And so in order to keep himself alive or to get his revenge... Tying it to his heartbeat is really good. Yeah, it's it's, it's a really plan. great supervillain plan. And of course, Lucifer knows about the X-Men and realizes that they're probably nearby. So he attempts to attack them with ionized energy. And only by the quick intervention of Professor X or the X-Men save, he uses his telekinetic projection to warn the X-Men that this blast is incoming and they are able to scatter 
one thing that struck me as weird is when they were explaining the power of his illusionary figure that they felt they need to let you know. I haven't read ahead in the X-Men. I've been planning on reading X-Men from one to wherever. They explained that also Magneto can do this power as well. I feel like at this point we've actually seen that happen, although it doesn't make any damn sense. Yeah, I I was like, it makes sense for Professor X to do it because it's kind of like Doctor Strange's astral projection. projection, You know, it has to do with the mind and stuff like that, whereas Magneto can only bend iron, so it wouldn't make sense for him to have it. No, it makes no sense, but I do believe they've shown it at this point. I mean, that that was just one thing. Like, I read that, and I was just like, why can he do it? Someone please tell me. No, they won't. They won't. They never do. Having been attacked, the X-Men go ahead and suit up. They get in their various costumes. Iceman ices up. And we get three panels of Jean Grey avoiding a pothole, which is just so damn stupid. I remember, I was like, really? Was this all for her to avoid a hole that... One, they just have to show off because the top two, you know, Beast and Iceman are showing off their powers. Beast is swinging from his trees and whatnot, and Iceman's icing up. Did they feel like they needed to show off Marvel Girl's powers? And by that, that means moving a log over a pothole so she doesn't fall? Yeah, so they did it in a really crappy way. Yeah. It's unfortunate. But now that the X-Men have suited up, they get another communication from Professor X, and he tells them that whatever you do, you have to protect Lucifer from being physically harmed. He tells them to defend themselves with all their powers, but don't harm Lucifer. And then he says, once again, I'll explain later. Professor X is just a fountain of terrible, useless information. At At no point is he really helpful here. I take that back. He was helpful in helping them avoid the blast that, yeah. from Lucifer there. That's about it. Yes, but that is about the extent of how much he's been useful. And I, if- just, I love those old X-Men costumes. I just look at him and I just love them. I love how he's like, no time for further explanation. And then he has a whole different thought bubble where he's telling them stuff. He's, he's telling them stuff, but he's only telling them part I mean, of the information. Yeah. And not enough to be helpful because at this point the Avengers come around the corner because Mjolnir is still sensing evil and... Instead of providing the X-Men with the information so that they can talk to the Avengers and get the Avengers to help them, Professor X just immediately yells, stop them! Yeah, Cyclops doesn't help, where he basically just repeats what Professor X has told him. He's like, you must not interfere, the mission is ours. Whereas Captain America says, you know, we fight for the same cause, let's join forces. But unfortunately, Cyclops knows nothing about really what's going on. Just Professor X told him to not let anybody interfere. Right. So, like, there's a chance for them to team up with the Avengers to help them as well. Yeah, the team is just really dependent on Professor X at this point still. Even though he's been gone for a couple of issues, it's frustrating at at best. Of course, immediately we jump into a fight between the Avengers and the X-Men. And as much as I love the X-Men, they're kind of outclassed here. Yeah, I mean, same here. I'm a big X-Men guy, as you know. And this is the first fight between them of many to come, as we all know. But yeah, they're still teenagers, still, you know, learning the limits of their powers. Whereas they're coming up against a god, two really bright scientists and engineers, and Captain freaking America. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to realize the time period we're in. Now, when we think of things like Avengers versus X-Men, the X-Men at that point have been fighting for their existence for the better part of 40 years. Mm-hmm. Almost consistently. And, while and there's the, more of them. Right. And while the Avengers have been fighting a lot, I don't think the stakes are quite as high for the Avengers frequently. And the Avengers are never quite as much the scrappy underdogs or 
on the ropes. You know, they fight villains, but they tend to have more of the powerhouses and things like that. Yeah. You get the Thors and the She-Hulks and Hulks and Captain Marvel, characters like that that are really uber powerful. Whereas X-Men have the random mutant powers that some of them have. You know, they get Storm down the road. They get... I mean, they get. They, there are some powerful ones. Storm, Colossus, Rogue. I mean, there are heavy hitters in the X-Men. Yeah, but, you know, the Avengers pull from all sorts of comics, whereas, like, X-Men is just, you have to have that mutant gene, basically, to be a part of them. You know, you're not getting aliens being part of the X-Men like the Avengers do. Right, typically not. Yeah, and then, you know, the Fantastic Four will usually go towards the Avengers side all the time anyway, so you add in that into the fray. No, absolutely. In general, as you mentioned, the X-Men at this point are still teenagers. They're still figuring it out. I mean, and while the Avengers are not a particularly good team, I mean, even in this fight, you get much more teamwork amongst the X-Men than you do among the Avengers. Mm-hmm. The Avengers are still far more knowledgeable and capable with their powers. Yeah. Even just looking at it from a publishing standpoint. I mean, if you think about what Iron Man's been around, so this is in the sixties. Iron Man came out, came out. They all came the, out. They all came out in the sixties. Yeah, uh, the only and, one that's been around longer is Captain America. Yes, that is true. What I was going to say though is that the Avengers title and X Men started the same month. Yeah. So literally, the two books are running very nearly parallel. But you also have to keep in mind the fact that the Avengers are made up of characters who already had their own books to start, with the exception of Captain America. So conceptually, that the Avengers have been around for longer. They're older. Yeah. They're more experienced with their powers. They know their limitations better. The fact that the Avengers are winning this fight is not at all shocking. One of the parts of this page, though, I do like is, and I always like the interaction between both of them, is between Hank Pym and Hank McCoy, where um, he's holding them basically by the back of his uniform up to him and is talking to him. And all Beast can say is, do you mind like modifying your voice pitch? Because it's hurting his ears because he's giant, man. So he's like talking to him regularly. He's not shouting, but because he's giant, man, it's hurting his ears. Yeah. And I just like that interaction between those two. Yeah. On the next page, we get a big two-thirds page panel, like a big group fight scene. And I've got some issues with this one. Each individual portion of the fight looks nice, but with absolutely no background. Yeah, just that blue behind them. They're not all on the same plane physically. Like if you look at their body positioning and things, Mm. there is no possible way that all of these characters are interacting. They're all standing on the same ground. Yeah. And it's just, what's going on here? Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell, like, who's connected with who, because I think they're trying to do where Iceman, Giantman, Jean Grey, Wasp, and Beast are together, but it's hard to tell. And then down in the corner, you have Iron Man saying something to Iceman, but, like, just the way it's positioned, they don't look like they should be anywhere close to each other. Yeah, I mean, it's your stereotypical team brawl kind of panel, and it's okay. It's difficult to figure out exactly what's going on. The characters look great, but yeah, it's difficult to find what's going on and the lack of background is really, really sad. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Sad. The little tussle between Gene and, and Wasp is, I felt like it was just kind of out of place. Well, when you've got a fight that has so much higher stakes yeah. as this fight appears to have, Wasp pulling Gene's hair in front of her face, really, you're going, yeah. okay, this doesn't do anything for the fight. And again, this goes back to the whole concept of Stanley in the 60s writing women is awful. Yeah. I mean, it's Wasp, it's Gene Grey, it's Sue Storm, it's, it's yeah. all of them. I mean, I guess it kind of goes to like the other writers that took over after he stopped doing the main writing for him, because those are 
to me, it's always been the first three women of Marvel have always been Sue Storm, of course, Wasp, and Jean Grey. And they go on to have really big stories, which I think oh, absolutely. is accredited to like the people who took over Avengers and stuff like that after. Yeah, it, it just it unfortunately takes time. Like Avengers, we will take over. Stan comes off the book earlier than other books. I mean, he's on Fantastic Four for a while. Yeah, and he's actually on Thor for a long time with Jack Kirby. Doesn't he hop on to Amazing Fantasies for a few issues? as well or did he write any amazing fantasies at all he wrote all of amazing fantasy oh remember amazing okay. fantasy ends at issue 15 and with, then it with spider-man and then it goes immediately to spider-man Spider-Man, that's right yeah and that's the other one that stanley hangs on to for a long time because those are the two books he feels most passionately about is spider-man fantastic four and spider-man yeah. like i said he has a significant run on journey into mystery with jack kirby which is kind of interesting i think So while the X-Men and the Avengers are duking it out, we go back to Professor X and Lucifer, and Lucifer's kind of keeping an eye on the battle, and then Professor X decides to finally use his mental abilities on Lucifer, which I've got two issues with this one. One, why does he finally decide to do that? He's the world's most powerful psychic. Secondly, if Lucifer was this prepared for Professor X, he has to know he's the world's most powerful psychic. How does he have no psychic defense against this? Nothing! Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Well, you know, supervillains back then, they had that one glaring weakness or flaw in their plan. So this must uh, yeah, be I mean, it. I mean, this is, you know, it's like it's like a giant target that says weakness here with giant signs and arrows pointing to it. It's yeah. nuts. And then it takes a while for the heroes to actually notice. Yeah. So, of course, Professor X is able to disable Lucifer without killing him. Now, interestingly enough, it's not identified in this issue. It's in Lucifer's next appearance. Lucifer is actually an alien. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing that somewhere. So, like, I, I didn't know much about the Lucifer character, but, like, I remember, like, he, you know, he has very few issues in the beginning. He's very few issues, period. Yeah. And then, like, I was trying to remember, I was like, for some reason when I read this issue, I was like, is he? I was like, I don't remember, but I think he's either an alien or, like, an android or something like that. But then I was like, oh, if he was an android, the mind control wouldn't really work on him. But now it does make sense that he's an alien. Yeah. Which also brings me to the point of the professor is very descriptive of how he gets goes through lucifer's brain to disable him wouldn't an alien's brain be different I, again this it's is probably something one of those last minute decisions right this is something that it's established after the fact lucifer being an alien is a retcon in about 10 issues 10 to 12 i think it's actually issues 20 and 21 so obviously it wasn't a thing here but look man's going you know he's an alien it shouldn't work like that yeah yeah but needless to say professor does do it and the professor kind of collapses on top of lucifer it's a little awkward and finally the professor contacts the avengers to say hey this is what's going on and you guys should stop fighting the x-men and he goes ahead and contacts thor just as he's about to smash iceman pretty good Mm, smash through his barrier of ice what's the barrier of ice that he's actually in yeah i think that would not go well and i just love like to me this writing is totally 60s because thor's there at the barrier and he's like, you know, no mere barrier of ice can stand up to my hammer. And Iceman's retort, which Iceman's always been quick with his retorts, is go fly a kite. You're too square to scare anybody. And I'm like, that's the most sexy thing I've ever read. Yeah, it's always fun reading Stanley writing teenagers in the 60s. Yeah. That's actually one thing I have to say is better about reading the Avengers than reading X-Men. Like, significantly better. Yeah, because he's trying to write for teenagers and just comes off cringeworthy at points. It does, whereas at least in Avengers, it's corny, but he's writing adults. Yeah. So... It kind of comes off good. 
Well, it comes off better. Let's not go to good. It's not go to good right away. I love Jack Kirby's art on the last panel of this page, though, because when Professor Xavier contacts Thor, Thor looks like he's about to crap his pants. Yeah. And here's another thing. He's talking about a voice that's speaking into his brain. I would think an Asgardian would be somewhat knowledgeable of magic arts and telepathy. I would like to think so as well, but obviously not. Obviously not, because yes, he does look like he is about to crap himself. I mean, I would too if Professor X's floating head appeared in front of me because that is a scary looking man so at this point the professor explains everything and i love the fact that while professor x is explaining this thor sits down and is listening very intently and the rest of everyone else is still going at the fight yeah the fight's going on all around them and thor's just like oh okay yeah okay Uh uh-huh uh-huh right it's really really amusing but (laughs) at this point now that the avengers have all the facts they go ahead and Stop fighting and let the X-Men go about their business. I love how Thor's, because Thor does the Avengers Assemble call, and Captain America's response is, oh, his arms are outstretched. That must mean we have to stop fighting. That's your symbol, his arms outstretched? I'm more interested in the fact that they had a planned symbol. Of stopping hostilities? Yeah. Yeah. Because they haven't ever used that before. It's just like, are you telling us to stop? Oh, no, no, I was stretching. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right. (laughs) It's like, you can, at least, you can at least think of something better. So like I said, the Avengers get on their way, and the X-Men now go to meet up with Professor X. And they fly down this, not fly, an angel flies. Yeah. The rest of the X-Men travel down this shaft to meet up with the Professor. And I just kind of want to go, if this shaft existed to start with, wait, why was Professor X on his little spelunking adventure there? What was the point of that? Because they make it seem like the shaft leads right to where Lucifer Ex- yeah. was. <laughs> Which I'm, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure they just kind of cut it to save panels. But it does just make it look like, oh, if I just went right down the shaft, I would have been in the layer. But Lucifer. it's got to be more convenient than the way the professor went in the first place. That is true. I mean, granted, it might be hard to get down there with a... Unless that's an elevator they're standing on. They don't quite... That's an elevator they're standing on. Okay. But even still, like, in the first couple of panels when the professor's in the caves... Yeah, and he's going over, like, what looks to be fire or something like that. Well, the first two panels, he's getting lowered down by some kind of winch. Yeah. He has the ability to make this work, even without the elevator. I just... I don't know why he didn't do it. Yeah. Because they don't want to make for great comic book panels. Right. So at this point, the professor has a plan, and the plan is that he's going to use Scott, he's going to use Cyclops, to destroy the fuse for this bomb before something happens. And as they're getting ready to do it, the drama builds because the professor's looking for the fuse in the bomb, and doing so causes him to lose a little bit of focus on Lucifer. Lucifer's heart starts kind of fluttering. Everything builds up so that the bomb is just about ready to go off, and Scott does in fact manage to destroy the bomb. Now, there's a couple things that kind of happen in here and one is that we get a great panel of what would happen if the bomb went off because we've all kind of been wondering that question so far and it's it's really terrible <laughs> like I, I love that middle panel though with the tsunami wave and all the people that's a good one i actually like the first panel even a little bit better when it's antarctica blowing up yeah like that's a really cool It conceptually reminds me of the death of Krypton. You know, it's got that kind of feel to it. As far as I know, Jack Kirby never did that. Yeah. And I would have loved to have seen what that looked like. But conceptually is what that image invokes. Yeah. 
The other thing about this is the professor finds the fuse and he states earlier that he needs Scott to destroy the fuse because his powers have no effect on the fuse. Yeah. And then the professor says, oh no, my powers have had an effect on the fuse. You just told us that your powers will have no effect on the fuse and now it sensitized it and it's going to spontaneously combust. First off, that's not how a fuse is going to work. This isn't an 18th century cannon. There's no combustion in the fuse. Secondly, you just told me your powers have no effect on it. If that's the case, then why did your powers suddenly now have an effect? Other than it is now plot relevant. Yeah. Damn it, Professor X. He makes the plot, not Stan. He does. Right. Now, the panel where Scott actually destroys the fuse, I really like it. Especially, I like the inking around Professor X's eyes, where it's just very heavy on the ink. Yeah, it's really well. I mean, he looks a little bit of it like a goth, but he does. <laughs> yeah, I was but in it, his wheelchair. You don't yeah. know what it does to you. Yeah, but it's a great panel. And as I mentioned, Scott destroys the fuse. Lucifer wakes up. Or I should say, Lucifer is woken up by the professor. And then they let him go. Yeah. Why? Why are you letting him walk away? Because they pledged that never cause injury to a human being. Right. Having said that, though, apparently it is totally cool to completely screw with someone's head. Oh, yeah. As long as you don't physically harm them. Mm-hmm. Like, effective brain rape yeah, is, to- is totally fine. Totally fine, as long as it's in the name of justice. Man, Professor X is such a terrible person. He really is. All right, well, that's our issue. So overall, as I mentioned before, I think Lucifer is a good villain and has a lot of potential and nobody ever takes advantage of it. He basically is removed from comics in his next appearance and then we'll have another short appearance in Captain America. But for the most part, he's basically a couple shots and then he's done. And that's unfortunate, I think. Bring back Lucifer. Yeah, I think... I mean, some retconning would obviously be involved. Like, could you just imagine that, though, reading the X-Men book, then all of a sudden the next big villain's Lucifer, and you're like, holy crap. I would love it. I'm not going to take credit for that idea, but, but I, would, like, I would love to see that. But, like, someone just walked in the Marvel comics and was like, listen, you're going to be writing X-Men. What do you want to do? I'm bringing back Lucifer. Yeah, Wait, what? absolutely. I, I could imagine, like, half the editors are going to be like, but he's Vertigo. No, no, not that Lucifer. Our Lucifer. Oh, you know, the Magneto-looking one. <laughs> That we turned into an alien. Yeah. So another thing about this issue is really, if nothing else, the issue as a whole reinforces my theory that superhero teams need strong leadership. Obviously, the Avengers kind of lack that, but I don't know that it's really as apparent in this issue. But the X-Men, they have leadership, but it's awful. Like, Professor X is just absolutely terrible. And Scott tries his best. But at this point, the guy's like 16. So he can't help but have things turn on him really fast. The entire situation with the Avengers escalates really because Scott is 16 and unable to deal with it. He does somewhat antagonize him a little bit. And then also I'm kind of like, well, the Avengers are people that are in their what 20s and all that stuff older as well oh absolutely and it's just like okay you guys just show up and start fighting a bunch of teenagers right that's something else the avengers should know better than to be fighting the x-men i mean it may not be obvious that they're teenagers strictly not completely but certainly they are much younger than you are and you guys should be the adults here i was surprised though how like little like captain america is i don't know because I'd never really read old Avengers if he is Mr. Moral Compass in the early Avengers, as much as they make him in to be later on. I would say to an extent, I've realized that early on, Cap's storylines tend to focus on Cap's frustrations about Bucky and his want for revenge against Zemo. 
Okay. Because like he doesn't come in until the Avengers until around what issue? Issue four. Issue four, and that's when he gets like that's like the man out of time. Yeah, that's when that all starts. Okay. Yeah, because I, I just wasn't sure if they like made him like the moral, you know, goody two shoes, nineteen forties Captain America. Certainly to an extent. Because that's what I found kind of weird was like they kind of just went right into that fight. I was like, wouldn't Captain America just kind of be like, hold on, guys? Even if Thor had the chair position, as they said. Well, the other thing on that, though, this is the 1960s. So you're talking 19 to 20 years since Captain America. Things haven't changed that much. Yeah. The overall morality of society isn't all that different. You know, we think of Cap really as the moral compass, and that certainly comes into play. But that becomes more and more apparent the further into modern times we get. Okay. Speaking of Thor being the chair, so the end of last issue, Enchantress basically resets time and takes everything back a week. So I'm almost certain that this issue takes place during that repeat week because Thor was just starting to be the chair mm-hmm. of the Avengers that week. And then now when the Avengers are leaving, they mention that Thor is no longer the chairman. So I'm almost certain that this issue and the last issue of X-Men take place effectively over the same week, just in one takes place, then time is reset, then the other takes place. As far as the art goes, it's Jack Kirby art, so there's a lot to love. Mm. It's really solid. There are a few places, uh, like that big fight panel that we mentioned, that are a little on the rough side. But overall, for a book that's got as many heroes as this one does, as many characters, everyone is on model. Yeah. Everyone looks exactly like they're supposed to. I'm trying to remember, is this the first big crossover issue? Like, not X-Men and Avengers-wise, but, like, any kind of, like, superhero-wise? No. For Marvel, at least? Nope. No? Okay. No, uh, I covered it in a different episode. The Avengers show up in two issues of Fantastic Four. Oh. Oh, yeah. That would make sense. And then, I mean, before that, Fantastic Four show up in an issue of Hulk. There's actually a surprising amount of crossover back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't really get like a full-on crossover for a long time. What we as modern readers would consider a crossover. And certainly you don't get a major event comic until the 80s and Secret Wars. Yeah. But yeah, the overall art, it's super consistent. The inking is very strong. I mentioned this before, my first introduction to Jack Kirby was through X-Men. And the first couple of issues of X-Men are really painful because the inking is just god-awful. Yeah, I think inker-wise... I can't remember if they changed inkers. I can't remember if the first few issues had a different inker. They, they did. The first yeah. few issues. I think they changed on issue number three. Yeah. I mean, and then when they changed inkers on... Yeah, I think it is number three. Paul, Avenger- Paul Rainman? Rainman? Rainman, yeah. yeah. Or Rainman, yeah. Well, it's interesting because when they change inkers on Avengers, I don't notice as much. And it's, in general, the art stays very strong. Mm-hmm. And throughout his run, Kirby's art gets consistently better in Avengers. Yeah. I mean, it happens in X-Men too. Like, I... I mentioned before we started recording i like seeing iceman's progression his art on iceman uh basically in number one he is kind of like a snowman oh yeah and as he went further and and in this issue he is more ice absolutely and i like that like it was just weird seeing a snowman fight no the art certainly gets better through the run 
Mm. But it really impresses me how dependent on the inker at times Jack Kirby's art can be. Yeah. Like, I was really impressed by how much I didn't like Jack Kirby's art. To be honest, to start, I did not like Jack Kirby's art. Because everyone's talking about how awesome it is. It is blasphemy. But everyone tells me how great the art is. And I go, I'm looking at the first couple of issues of X-Men. And I go, this is not good. Because it's not. Because the inking's really bad. My first introduction to Kirby, I want to say it was Fantastic Four. And was mainly his thing. And that's where I grew up. I love Jack Kirby's take on all the monsters and everything. I think that's great. That was my first one. But like you said, when I got into X-Men and was reading the old ones and I picked up the masterpieces, it is hard. That's when I first noticed that depending on the ink really does kind of make Kirby's art. Well, and like I've, I had looked at a number of things like his later work on Thor and there's some just really cool looking stuff. And I go, what the hell happened? I understand, like, there's some really good stuff, but there's a lot of, at least what I was seeing was really bad. And then, obviously, a few issues in, the anchor changed, and that helped a lot, and then it got progressively better. So, yeah, that's my thoughts on Jack Kirby. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of thoughts on Jack Kirby, but there that's, are. There that's are. a whole another podcast. There are a lot of thoughts. But again, the art of this book, very consistent with a few minor exceptions. I mean, Jack Kirby even made a log look good in this issue. All right, well, once again, Andrew, I'd like to thank you for coming on, and I'm sure we'll have you on again. Right, thanks for having me. All right, remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, Spider-Man in Avengers number 11.